Hello and welcome to the Around the Nation podcast for the week of Monday, October 31st, 2011. I'm Pat Coleman. And I'm Keith McMillan. And uh, eight teams come to Halloween dressed as NCAA tournament teams as they have clinched automatic bids. We're talking about Johns Hopkins clinching the Centennial Conference, Thomas Moore clinching the Presidents, Albion in the MIAA, Monmouth in the Midwest Conference, St. Thomas in the MIAC, Wisconsin Whitewater in the WIAC, St. Scholastica with the first automatic bid in football out of the UMAC, and Cal Lutheran for the third year in a row out of the SCIAC. But uh, I want to start, uh, Keith, with a game that isn't on any of those lists because it was just a, now it's just an old-fashioned, uh, I guess, can we, can we still call it a backyard brawl? Not in the same conference, but uh, Wesley and Salisbury uh, sharing some uh, sharing some space on US 13 there on the uh, eastern shore of the United States. And... Uh, and had a uh, a pretty interesting game, which you were at. Yeah, and and you know they they share I guess some common ground in the sense that um, you know because they're they're sort of tucked away from the the rest of the the Mid Atlantic teams. They kind of for for so many years in the Atlantic Central Football Conference were uh, were sort of fending for themselves. Salisbury, of course, joins the Empire Eight this year, so they play a lot of teams from New York, but they uh, they still get that game in every year with uh, with Wesley and both teams really needed this victory on Saturday, uh, Salisbury, obviously, to, um, I guess, to up its national profile. Uh, you know, they, they put up big numbers offensively, but, but they, you know, beating Wesley sort of w- would have given them a, um, a sense of legitimacy, especially to the, you know, top 25 voters. And then, uh, you know, Wesley, with the loss back in week one, they just needed it to, uh, to, to, to get – because they can't afford to lose at all, I guess. In uh, you know, when, when it comes to Pool B, they're not chasing an automatic bid. Salisbury, I think, you know, could afford to to lose this game and uh, just go right back to Empire Eight play and still try to clinch the AQ. But uh, but for Wesley, you know, they, they they really had no margin of error. And I think one of the the big differences, of course, you know, both the teams um, stack up well against each other. They know each other well, so Wesley doesn't get caught off guard with the way uh, Salisbury runs the triple option, and so. You know, we weren't expecting a high-scoring game. Then you add that cold rain that was almost kind of sleet for part of the game, and you add that in there, and it was just really uh, a real tough type of game. But but I thought the emotional aspect really uh, was big for Wesley. They they really were um, – I think they found something to rally around and to give this team its own identity separate from, you know, the past five Wesley teams, some of which went on to the national semifinals and, and had been a step away from the Stag Bowl. And, and that that is the um, you know the the events that happened with uh, with with Chip Knapp's son Ben. I think this this everything you sort of saw and heard on Saturday around Wesley sort of traced back to that and had that um, sense of emotion to it. And all of a sudden, you have a team that was kind of finding itself early in the season, lost to Kane, had to play all these you know non division D three teams, no real natural rivalries. This was their natural rivalry. Uh, with Salisbury, and then they finally have something I think to give them an identity. I I, I want to get back to the uh, to the emotional aspect, but I wanted to touch on something you said a minute ago. So Salisbury, of course, still does have the automatic qualifier, uh, the AQ in its sights. But uh, one thing they lost out on on Saturday is a chance at the top seed. And uh, the uh, uh, whether Salisbury would have gotten a, t- a top seed in a quote unquote easternmost bracket in the Division Three playoffs, obviously now is. Uh, is a moot point, but uh, they were certainly in contention for it. I would have I would have to say if they ran the table, and that is something that uh, that they won't have. That's one thing they lost on Saturday. Yeah, and and they maybe now are looking at a situation where where they won't be the top seed in, in the East. Um, 
they, you know, they may not, I think they're probably still in good shape for a home game. If they make the playoffs, they have to beat St. John Fisher this coming Saturday. But, but for those people who are, uh, who avidly follow the East teams and, uh, and hope for that, that number one seed or that bracket to not be built around Mount Union, I think the last team out there is probably Delaware Valley. Uh, that they can hope for, and, and Del Val has its two toughest games of the season still coming up. They have to play Widener and Lycoming here in the last uh, two weeks, so they're they're eight and zero, but they may not be ten and zero. One of the uh, ways that Salisbury has has lost uh, big games and games against top teams in the past is by not being able to take care of the football. And obviously, when you know when you run the triple option, the uh, the 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 quarterback has to make a lot of last second decisions. The uh, balls flying around all over the place. How did that uh, play out on Saturday? Well, you know, part of that was, was the weather. And, and Salisbury, I think, fumbled four times but recovered three of them. So the ball was was going to be sort of popping out uh, just because of the, it, it rained uh, really right through halftime. And it was that cold rain, too. So the balls are – when it's cold, the ball hits your hand hard, you know. And then um, it's, all, it's all slippery and it's, it's a little heavier to throw. So instead of a nice spiral, it sort of flutters. You know, that cold rain is probably the worst thing to play in. It's almost better if it snows. And then it, it kind of led up in the third quarter, and both teams put some points on the board, and it started to rain again with about 10 minutes left in the game. And uh, by that point, Wesley was just trying to uh, to, to run the clock out. Um, so so Salisbury, I don't think – I mean, they had they, – they did a nice job moving the ball. I, I thought they left some points out on the field. They uh, There was a big – there was a seam pass right at the start of the second quarter that uh, just overthrown, that would have been a touchdown. There was a, um, a touchdown run. That, uh, one of the running backs broke out into open field, sort of just tripped over the 50-yard line, but then what, then Salisbury threw a 50-yard uh, you know, touchdown pass uh, right on the next play. It's a deep post pattern. And uh, so that one didn't cost them. But uh, Salisbury really, I thought, moved the ball well a couple times and just didn't finish when they got in the red zone. And that, more than the turnovers, was uh, was their undoing, and then when they then when they got behind, Wesley put together uh, really a couple of nice long drives to, uh, to to take control of the game in the second half. And, and Keith, about the uh, emotional aspect and uh, Chip Knapp and his uh, his family and what's going on there, I, I'm I'm sure you obviously talked to a lot of people uh, on the sidelines, on the field, in the stands. What was the was the kind of general reaction? Well, really, the the thing that stood out the most more than than the sidelines or any, any of the fans was that uh, when you heard Mike Drass in the post game, he said, you, you know, as soon as he, he gets changed, he's going to turn around and drive out to Pittsburgh where, uh, where we're chip. And, uh, you know, he, he chip wasn't on the sideline um, for, for this game. So everybody wanted to win it for him. And, and um, Shane McSweeney was on the radio and uh, Jeff Morgan was on the radio, the linebacker. Uh, they, they, they were talking after the game and, you know, they both brought it up. And then and Mike Drass, you know, said basically as soon as he's going to get changed uh, and, and then get in a car and drive from Dover to Pittsburgh and, and see how Chip is doing uh, and see how Ben Knapp is doing. But also uh, Chip's still out there. And I know they wanted to, to bring the game ball out for him. You know, they, they felt like they wanted to win for him. You know, now, now Wesley's playing, of course, for itself and for its playoff uh, potential and, and, and really for, for pride of a program that is used to going not just to the playoffs but deep into the playoffs. But they, they found something more important to play for. And, and it sounds a little cliche, but I think they really do. Uh, they really sounded to me like they're, they rally around it. And, and this team has something uh, that it cares about and a reason to sort of put all the, you know, when it comes to practicing, you know, in school, put all that stuff out of their mind and just focus uh, 
on, on being the best they can because now they have something that, that really uh, inspires them. And um, they, they played really well on, on uh, Saturday, I think especially defensively. You know, Salisbury, I believe, was the number one offense in the country coming into the game. And uh, Wesley held them, uh, you know, Wesley held them off the board in the first half and uh, held them to 14 points total. Salisbury was never really out of the game. They, they always had a chance in it, but that, that's it's tough for them to come back when they get far behind. And, uh, and Wesley put together um, in a, when it was twenty to fourteen in the in the fourth quarter. Wesley uh, put together eight play sixty yard drive, ended with a field goal. But that sort of took a lot of time off the clock and made it a two score game. And, and, and that was sort of the the clincher for them. Wesley finishes the regular season uh, with uh, two games, one next week at uh, Newport News Apprentice, and then back home uh, in week 11 to face Huntington, a, uh, a team in contention for a, a Pool B bid, at least if they win that game, I would say it has to be considered. Uh, also, of course, Case Western Reserve, one of the other big uh, candidates for an at-large bid for that Pool B bid, uh, defeated the University of Chicago on Saturday. Uh, the game I was at, Keith... Um, Obviously, uh, I, I think we've talked a little bit about it as it was coming up, but uh, Mike Zwiefel of the University of Dubuque uh, set the all-time, all-divisions NCAA record for uh, most receptions in a career. He passed uh, Scott Pingle of uh, Westminster College of Missouri, and, uh, you know, oddly enough or coincidentally enough on the same day, we'll talk about this in a couple minutes too, uh, Pingle's uh, teammate, the quarterback who was throwing to him for all those receptions, uh, Justin Peary, saw his uh, – career touchdowns record fall uh he uh fell to alex tanny of monmouth who uh threw three touchdowns on saturday and uh, is now also the all divisions all-time leading uh record holder in touchdown passes but about the uh about the university of dubuque game of course dubuque is uh, also a playoff contender they improved to eight and one they have uh one game left in their regular season to uh face co next week on the road uh in a game that is essentially uh, look, it looks like it will decide the Iowa Conference title. Co has one extra game to go. They face uh, Cornell to end the season, but uh, they are uh, these teams are essentially tied with one loss apiece uh, at the top of the Iowa Conference. So uh, I'd say this about Zwiefel, and we have um, you know a video interview of him elsewhere on the site. So I won't uh, I won't go and replay any of the audio from that. But you know, basically. Uh, this is a kid who um, you know has been around football and Division three football at a high level for for years and years. Remember uh, his dad, Stan Sweevil, who's the head coach now, was the uh, longtime offensive coordinator at the University of Wisconsin Whitewater. Uh, was uh, Stan was the uh, coordinator for uh, the first two of those uh, Warhawk Stag Bowl teams. Uh, he left. Uh, Mike Sweevil played his first two years at UW River Falls. Uh, Stan got the head coaching job at Dubuque, and uh, uh, Mike followed him there, uh, played his junior season two years ago. Last year got hurt uh, early on in the season, uh, unable to finish, got a, a medical red shirt. Came back this year, and uh, on Saturday, he, uh, he set the record. He ended up with uh, 15 catches for 148 yards and two touchdowns. And here's the, I guess, the odd thing, the uh, the 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 catch that, they stopped the game after that they made a little presentation about was actually not the record-setting catch because at uh, halftime it was determined that uh, they had actually incorrectly 
uh, called something a, a pass when in fact it was a, a backwards lateral and should have been credited as a rush. So uh, when, when catch number 12 finally officially came uh, early in the third quarter, there wasn't much fanfare. And uh, this is what uh, Coach Stan Zweifel had to say about that. Somebody told me that walking off field, the first one was a lateral, I guess, on our bubble screen, counted yeah. as a lateral. So uh, let me say this to you, Pat, so you know, uh, first of all, I'm just excited as his father and as his coach about what he did, but that's a reflection of how well the team has played, and you don't get any of those kind of individual accomplishments unless the team plays like they did. Regardless, Keith, uh, a, a, certainly a fantastic uh, day for the University of Dubuque, a, a nice atmosphere, great day for football with all the snow going on in uh, Pennsylvania and parts east. Uh, it was beautiful for uh, football out here in the Midwest. Uh, it was uh, in, the, in the 50s and sunny and just a little bit of wind and, and ideal for football. So uh, Zwiefel has one more regular season game. If they win, they go to the playoffs. He's got a chance to add to that record uh, there as well. But you know, is a guy you know who, when he started his freshman year at Wisconsin River Falls. I think it was a name who was our, uh, who was already on our radar, and here he is. He's going to be at the top of uh, the All-Divisions record book. He, he does seem like one of those players who's been playing for uh, ever, and part of that is because he's played in, in all our parts of five seasons. Um, but, you know, what you explained was, was kind of interesting to me, Pat, too, because I watched the video of, of the catch and, you know, he just kind of runs a in or square in, whatever, over the middle, makes the catch. You know, it's a first down. He hands the ball to the ref, walks back to the huddle. And, and you're thinking, well, man, all this buildup and this, this great catch. And uh, it's just whole hum for him because he's done it so many times. And, and actually, uh, there was a presentation, as you mentioned, and uh, it, it was good that they acknowledged it. And, and I think this attention is really good for Dubuque. And, and if... Um, as much as the record itself is about Mike Zwiefel and, uh, he really is doing, I, I, I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but he's always doing his dad a big favor because, you know, Michael's going to graduate probably at the end of this, this year, move on and, and do something else in football or in life. But his dad's still going to be the coach at Dubuque. And, and right now he's got an eight and one team. Uh, it's got a chance to, to win the, the, the Iowa conference for the first time since, you know, like 81 or 79 or something like that. It's been a real long time since, since the Spartans have, uh, have done that. They, he really is by setting this record, which is a, it's a very individual thing. He's going to leave behind something that's very nice for the, for this whole team and this whole program. And, you know, just the fact that we've spent so much time talking about Dubuque this season is, uh, is, is a pretty good building block, I think, for that program going forward. Uh, it is, and I think that uh, you know, um, you know, we talked uh, earlier in the earlier in the season on the podcast. He's not the only guy on offense, obviously, for uh, University of Dubuque, but he was certainly the focal point of attention on Saturday. Uh, wanted to make sure that he got his uh, he got the record set at home. To be honest with you, uh, they got it. Uh, if if not for the uh, if not for the statistical error, it would have been it would have gotten done in the first half. Uh, but they didn't throw him any shovel passes. They didn't really throw him any uh, any cheapies necessarily. Um, so I, I was I was kind of glad to see that. Uh, on the other side of the ball, you know, uh, Dubuque did shut Luther out, but they're a little bit young on defense. Um, you know, I think we made note earlier in the year that uh, Zwiefel plays on defense on occasion. He didn't have to on Saturday. Uh, got a little bit of a break there. He also is the holder uh, on on. Uh, place kicking opportunities and he's the punt returner as well so it's a guy who could be on the field you know pretty much for every play if uh if they wanted to wanted to go that way 
and, and we'll see if they do get a chance in the playoffs against a team, uh, you know, maybe a team that somewhere has a cornerback that, that can match up with them. You know, Pat, you talked about them getting the, you know, getting the record and not doing it cheaply, but uh, by the same token, they didn't have any trouble getting him 15 catches and still getting their other, you know, DeMarcus Fleming, uh, you know, six catches. They still got 22 touches to the top running back. You know, they threw 37 passes, and, and Wyatt Haynes threw five touchdown passes on, on Saturday. So, I mean, it wasn't like he is the entire offense, but they had no no problem getting the ball to him, you know, whenever they need to. And it'll be interesting if, in fact, it happens in the playoffs, you know, when it, when Dubuque faces a team that has a guy that, that can take him out of the game, how good is the rest of that offense and, and how good is that defense? Can they lean on that defense? Will they be able to win a game or two or three and, and move on in what is looking like it will be a loaded West region in the playoffs? And uh, for what it's worth with all those numbers, none of those guys played in the fourth quarter either as uh, the as Dubuque went on to uh, shut out Luther by the score of 42 to nothing. Uh, we talked briefly about Alex Tanney with his, with his record, and he's got one record yet to come, uh, or at least potentially yet to come. Uh, you know, basically, uh, I mean, Monmouth, as we mentioned earlier, clinched the, the uh, automatic bid out of the Midwest, Midwest Conference. So uh, Alex Tanney has two chances, uh, at least, to get uh, the uh, the next record on the docket, which is uh, the one that uh, Guilford quarterback Josh Vogelbach set a few years ago. 13,605 13, career passing yards uh, is, uh, is the record. And uh, Tanny has 13,281, so he needs 324 to tie, uh, just two yards over his average. Uh, uh, Tanny is a guy who is, you know, Threw for 265 yards and three touchdowns as uh, Monmouth really had its way with Carroll in a 69 to 14 win. That game was 48 to seven at the half. I'm sure they, you know, it's another instance where they could have played him a lot longer. He could have passed a lot more, and they didn't need him to. And um, you know, it'll. I don't say it would be interesting to see what he does next week because I think what is more the question is how far is this record going to go out? It's gonna. There's going to be at least a little bit of space between uh, Tanny and Vogelbach, I would assume, if everybody stays healthy uh, before this is uh, before this is done. Yeah, and, and you've got to believe in the mind of the player, too, where he's knows about this record because everybody's talking about it now, and it's getting to the point where we're, we're going to talk about it. Um, you know, that's the record that he set, but then he's likely going to set one here in the next week or two. Uh, it would be certainly uh, pretty, you know, amazing if he got it. Uh, right away. But then, you know, the, the big thing, again, we're talking about a team that's now clinched a playoff bid and you're, you're, uh, you're the leader of the team. So you're, he's a team player and he's thinking about, can I leave a legacy in this program? Can, can I move this program uh, on in the playoffs? And, you know, they'll, they'll play their rivalry game. Uh, they'll, they'll play Knox next week. And that's sort of a, it, it's a, it's a big deal, but it hasn't been a big deal competitive competitively really since, uh, since Monmouth's rise lately so that that's going to be sort of one you know chalk that up as an easy win and then start looking at all the different playoff permutations what kind of matchup will they get um in, in the playoffs and it, you know it's nice to know those eight teams you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast pat at least they know they're in you know they don't know where they're going who they'll be matched up against or if they'll have a home game or, or be on the road but at least they know they're in and, and that's when you start thinking you know, you got to take it one day, one day at a time, one week at a time. But you start thinking, man, I could really leave my a legacy as a player, and, and for this program, not just with the numbers I put up, but with what what kind of steps forward this program as a whole takes. And, and don't forget, Alex Tanius is the same guy who uh, posted the uh, 
the Trick Shot quarterback video back in February. Got himself on ESPN. Uh, will be on the History Channel. I said sometime that's uh, coming up fairly soon. Uh, I don't have the air date in front of me. I was looking for it, but uh, it'll be on Stanley's Superhumans. They were in uh, that that show was in town in uh, July, I believe, to uh, to tape a segment with Tanny. So uh, you know, he's the guy who's got pro uh, pro aspirations as well. Although there's plenty of time to uh, talk more about uh, those things as they uh, as they come on. We have um, you know. 40 minutes or so left in this podcast and a lot of stuff to cover, uh, including University of Wisconsin Oshkosh for all the time that we've spent over the last few weeks uh, talking about how they need to get in. If they went out, they didn't win out. Yeah, that's a little disappointing for us as a, uh, you know, a, a team of, of playoff analysts who like to take a look at all the different uh, ways things might break down and how, you know, we're, we're such big proponents, I think, of aggressive scheduling and we and seeing uh, Oshkosh, who, who has Whitewater already in its conference schedule every year, you know, to go out and, and pick up a home and home with Mount Union. I, that's clearly a program that that is being aggressive about trying to get better. And, and we saw it start to come together for them this year. And, then, you know, they had Whitewater on the ropes last week or not on the ropes, but it was a tie game in the fourth quarter. And Whitewater had to put together a, a drive to to kick a field goal and win it. And I think that sometimes what happens after a game like that is there's such a such a letdown. And it, it's amazing because Oshkosh, we believe, had a chance at making the playoffs. But you go from this this high of I, we can beat the number one team in the country, we can do something that doesn't get done, you know, hasn't been done since 2008, uh, beat Whitewater, you, you put everything into that game, and then you lose it by a hair. Then you got to turn around and play play another game next week, and you got to get up again for that one. And, and the thing about the WIAC is, there's there's nothing easy. There's no no easy games. You know, maybe River Falls this year because they're zero and eight, but you got seven teams right now, uh, or six teams in that division that are five hundred or better. You got three, you know, five win teams plus Whitewater, and, and Lacrosse was the team out of that group that uh, they're they're three and five record wise, but they lost by one touchdown at Mary Harden Baylor. They lost by a field goal at Platteville. Uh, they they played uh, stout tough, and now they they beat Oshkosh in overtime. And there's just, you know, for Oshkosh, they they needed to be able to turn around and and, and summon that same energy from the Whitewater game, but but wipe that loss, you know, wipe the slate clean and, and turn around and, and and put it to uh to Wisconsin Lacrosse, and they weren't able to do it. And uh, they got caught in a game that went to overtime, and uh, overtime didn't work out for them. No, and in fact, to be honest with you, of course, uh, Oshkosh, in a sense, kind of lucky to be in the game at all. Late in the third quarter, uh, Lacrosse is up twenty-four to seven. This game is, you know, it, it's firmly in Lacrosse's hands um, before Oshkosh comes back and and forces overtime. Uh, Lacrosse outgained Oshkosh four seventy-nine to two ninety-seven. I mean, Lacrosse was really taking it to Oshkosh. This was uh, until, you know, Oshkosh kind of woke up. Uh, and and it, it maybe got the benefit also of a uh, of a of a 25 yard drive to tie the game with uh, two and a half minutes left. This was this was Lacrosse's game to win, let alone Oshkosh's to lose. Lacrosse really came out and took it to him. Yeah, and, and you know in the end the, the the right team won, you might say, because like you said, they outgained him, they outplayed him, they led um, by 17 points with 15 minutes left in the game. And uh, sometimes oh, sometimes overtime, the team that sort of scurries back, rallies back into the game, carries that momentum into overtime, and uh, it didn't happen that way. And it was, it was interesting, too, because Oshkosh got the ball first 
in, in overtime. So you, they, they have this furious 17-point comeback. They force overtime. You think they get the ball first and punch it right in. And instead, they ended up uh, having to try a 34-yard field goal, missed that, and then uh, the, the lacrosse turnaround throws a touchdown pass. Uh, or, or actually, they, they got a pass interference uh, penalty right away and then uh, then ran a touchdown in. So they But they, their their play, their overtime was bang, bang, you know, and it was – it's interesting because sometimes you see that the, the team that rallies is the one that that scores right away in overtime, and and their defense, the uh, lacrosse defense, was able to uh, to hold off Oshkosh and give its its team opportunity to win in overtime. Right. Instead, it almost never got to overtime. Uh, uh, Wisconsin lacrosse was uh, driving and actually had two shots at a uh, at a game winning field goal after Oshkosh uh, burned its second and third timeout to try to ice the kicker. Uh, lacrosse kicker. Uh, Misses a 19-yard field goal, but uh, Oshkosh was a uh, call for an offside penalty. Uh, second attempt from you know basically the same distance because we're talking about half the distance, not much there. Uh, the second attempt was blocked, so Lacrosse had two shots at 19-yard field goals that could have won the game and and uh, eliminated overtime altogether. But uh, Oshkosh did uh, did block it, had the momentum on its side, but couldn't finish it off. So uh, Oshkosh loses its third game. You know, as many, uh, despite the fact that obviously two of them were to the uh, the consensus two best teams in the country over the past uh, more than half a decade, uh, Oshkosh not able to finish eight and two, and they will find themselves out of the playoffs come selection Sunday. Um, those two purple powers, uh, interesting games on Saturday uh, for Mount Union. You know, we've been talking about the uh, the the rotating quarterback system all year, and um, you know, it it looks prescient basically because uh, Neil Seaman as a as happened in the uh, the uh, national semifinals last year, Neil Seaman got hurt and uh, wasn't able to play in the Stag Bowl, and kind of led, I guess, Larry Karras presumably to uh, to to use this uh, system where he's using both him and Pilato as a uh, as dual quarterbacks. Uh, Seaman gets hurt again on the first series for Mountain Union against Otterbein, and uh, and they need Pilato to they need to lean on Pilato. Yeah, and and that was a big story of the Stag Bowl last year where uh, you know. Pilato had to start the game, and uh, he, you know, he struggled a little bit in the second half of that game. And, and they brought Cecil Shorts in to, to quarterback the team in the fourth quarter. You know, he's their star receiver, so by moving him, you know, you put your best playmaker under center, but then you take your best receiver out of the game, and uh, it sort of left a conundrum. And it's not something that that Mount Union hasn't done before because we go back to you know 06, I believe it is. Mike Joris is the starter for for Mount Union, but they have this young kid named Greg McKaylee who gives them another dimension, is able to run run the ball a little bit. And uh so you know we know Karras if he has two guys that he likes, he'll play them both. Or and, Jesse uh, Burkhart and Zach Bruni in two thousand three. Right. You go go back even further. That's a that's a good example to pull out. These two guys I think stylistically they're 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 different, but they're they're um not as different as as you know Bruni and Burkhart or uh, or McKaylee and Joris, you know, because he, in, in those cases, each one of those guys was a real great runner. These two, I, I think you you hit it on the head, Pat. They just want to make sure if they ever get themselves in a situation where they have this, they have this great defense, and they, they know they're playing for something bigger than just this week. You know, they know they're going to be around pretty deep in the playoffs. They get in the, in a playoff game. They want to have more than just that great defense to lean on. They want to make sure that offense is operating smoothly, and uh, it's it sort of you don't. Th- it's never good to have an injury, but it's good to know that when that occurs to your team, that your that that the production is not going to fall off. 
And uh, Mountain Union, of course, driven a lot of its offense this year is, is Jeremy Murray running the ball. But to, to have a quarterback in the game that can step in when you lose your number one guy and, and, and can play the way Matt Pilato plays is, is certainly real helpful, and it bodes well for them in the playoffs. Pilato on Saturday, 16-22 passing for 223 yards, three, inter- uh, three touchdowns, one interception, as Mountain Union blanked Otterbein 42-0. Uh, slightly stiffer test this week when uh, Mount Union plays Baldwin-Wallace. Uh, the other purple power, of course, is the two-time defending champion, uh, University of Wisconsin-Whitewater. Uh, the Warhawks uh, saw their record book rewritten as uh, Lavelle Coppage passed Justin Beaver. He's now, uh, let's see, uh, number one in uh, UW-Whitewater history with 6,776 career yards uh, and uh, number three all-time in Division Three. That means he needs uh, 577 yards to catch R.J. Bowers, uh, the famous running back in the late 90s from Grove City. And uh, he needs 1,298, so about 1,300 more yards over the next uh, seven games here to catch Nate Kamick of, of Mount Union. And that's just a few years ago. We thought that was uh, you know, a remarkable all-divisions record that that would be a long time before it gets broken. And here Coppage is on the, on the cusp of breaking it. But... He needs to average 185 yards over the next seven games. And Whitewater has to play all seven of those games. Exactly. We do. I do get to assuming that they yeah. will be. Um, they will. They, they'll have five playoff games, and they may not. They may have four or three. We know they're going to have one because they they've clinched the bid. But uh, we aren't certain how many they'll play in the playoffs. He really Coppage. Um, yeah, I think to hit this number, I, I think it's a little much to ask somebody to average 185. And I know that Whitewater. Likes to lean on him more deeper into the playoffs. You know, when they get into these tough games, their mo is to you know start start the game running the ball and run it some more in the second quarter, run it some more in the third, and by the fourth quarter, having that line lean on your defensive line, uh, the whole course of the game, they really start. Um, you know, they start picking up those yards in big chunks in the fourth quarter. And you know, remember last season at the end of the Stag Bowl. Um, Whitewater got the ball back and Coppage broke off his big 75 yard run in, in a you know, third and short, fourth and short situation and uh, put the game away. And that's the type of thing that, that Whitewater loves to do. They just wear on you, wear on you, wear on you. And then eventually he breaks a big one. But he, I think t- to hit this average, to, for him to break the record, he needs to have m- maybe one or two really remarkable uh, games here. Go over 200, maybe 250. Uh, and you know maybe even a 300 yard game and we've seen it happen in the playoffs commit you know he didn't get to 8700 some odd yards without having a few remarkable 300 yard games in the playoffs so it can be done and uh whitewater definitely is the type of team that would would do it you know we've seen games where coppage gets 38 carries so uh it, it could happen coppage had uh, on saturday put up 245 yards on 29 carries it was his first 200 yard game since that uh, stag bowl uh, last season that uh, keith already mentioned um yeah keith i wanted to talk about um you know something we uh haven't really talked about over the last couple weeks uh, and i know that um this past week playing howard Payne isn't necessarily the uh, the best indicator for her, uh, for how an offense is doing because uh Howard Payne has, has uh, struggled pretty much all season, but Mary Harden Baylor seems to have righted the ship a little bit on offense and has been putting uh, the offensive numbers back up the last couple of weeks that uh, we uh, had expected from them uh, earlier in the season. Yeah, I mean, you know, their, their point totals the last three weeks are 52, 54, 57. And, uh, you know, the, the 
thing that is sort of the same story every year with Mary Harden Baylor. If they can, if they can be more than just a one-dimensional offense, if if they can be more than a one-dimensional team, you know, if they have a good defense and if they can throw the ball a little bit, they're they're a dangerous team to 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 anybody in the playoffs. But you know, further we get down, you know, maybe maybe Wesley could, is, is the stumbling block for them. They always seem to play for the. South region title, and then maybe Mary Harden Baylor ends up being a team that challenges one of these purple powers. Um, it may be a little early to say that, but I think they're I think they're emerging as a strong number three. I, I know St. Thomas is right there in that mix, and St. Thomas's numbers their their scores aren't quite as flashy because they're built on on defense and, and running the ball. Um, and St. Thomas really been exceptional on defense this season. Um, so so the numbers, you know, you don't see those fifty seven six wins like you see with Mary Harden Baylor. But I, I think you see the Crusaders hitting their stride here as we get to November. That That's a dangerous thing for the rest of the uh, teams that make the playoffs. Uh, St. Thomas defeated Gustavus on Saturday, 20-7. to um, Yeah, that, that's another one of those scores that doesn't necessarily look very flashy. Um, I think, uh, you know, from, from what I have heard, St. Thomas is – Trying to give some of his guys a little bit of a bit of a rest. They're playing. Uh, they're playing their ten games in weeks one through ten. Don't have a bye until week eleven. So they've got some guys who are banged up. Um, I didn't think they had as many as uh, five freshmen on the on the field on the offensive side of the ball at, at one point. So the Tommies jumped out to a thirteen nothing lead and, and kind of cruised. And uh, I'm not necessarily sure if there's anything to take from that except for the fact that the defense continued to dominate. It's an interesting situation too, Pat. You mentioned no buy until uh, week eleven. There, there are a few teams that that make the playoffs that have that that buy right there. I believe Monmouth, Monmouth. we talked about earlier yeah. is is one of the other ones that will be in there and will be watching, knowing that they've they've got the playoff uh, spot in hand. And then you get healthy, week eleven. You you know kind of keep an eye on where the where the matchups shake. The coaches may may uh, fan out across the West, you know, from St. Thomas and watch the teams that they could potentially get matched up with. Uh, not exactly sure how they'll do it, but that's a very interesting situation to have that week, I think, to get healthy, to figure out who you may play in the playoffs. And uh, I don't I don't know if I particularly would like it as a player. I, you know, I remember as a player, the great thing was once you once you got past uh, – Summer camp, that rhythm of the season was great. You didn't want to ever have a break. Every every week, you know, it's 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 the game is Saturday, Sunday you're off or you lift or something like that. Monday you watch film and then your practice is hard on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday you walk through, Saturday another game, and you always want that rhythm. And, and to ha- I don't know if the week off is great, but it certainly will be interesting for St. Thomas to have that week to to get healthy. And as you mentioned, Pat, they're already using their freshmen, so. I don't know if they're trying to rest their their number ones their number one guys or they're just trying to get some young guys some experience to see who they can who can put who they can put on that roster of 52 when they make the playoffs but they definitely have an advantage that uh that that not too many playoff teams will have um you know I, I think too when you're talking about um you know St. Thomas and some of the other teams that are are destined for high seeds um if if the bye in week 11 is an issue um, at the very least, you're likely to be matched up with a, a particularly overmatched opponent in the first round of the playoffs. And if you if you have a bit of a slow start, you it's not likely to uh, end up uh, shooting you in the foot. And, and that's something that's going to happen in the West, probably uh, East, North. You know, for your St. Thomas, your Mount Union, your Whitewater. If those end up being three of the number one seeds, that may not happen for Mary Harden Baylor if if they end up being the number one seed in the South because. 
they got to they have to play who's ge geographically close to them and and while there are several um southern teams still in the mix here for playoff bids you know it may end up being that uh that uh, they had they have to host trinity or something in the first round because um there there just isn't that many other teams that 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 can go to Mary Hart and Baylor in the first round so that's one of those uh, advantages that I guess probably St. Thomas will, will certainly have. They'll end up playing the, the champion of the the NAFCON or the MWC or or you know maybe the UMAC. I mean I, I think that's a pretty likely game actually to, to have um, Scholastica come down from Upper Minnesota down to the uh, St. Paul area. I think if you're a Mary Hart Baylor fan and you want to see somebody different other than uh, Trinity, uh, you want to root for Louisiana College to win out. Uh, that pretty much Louisiana College at nine and one. I think would basically uh, force its way into the playoffs, especially because we've had you know a couple of other one-loss potential teams lose uh, over the past couple weeks. Uh, that way, you know, you're more likely to see a, a Louisiana College Trinity first-round matchup. I think we checked the mileage on this, and it's under 500. So, uh, yep. and then, uh, and then, you know, somebody else comes in to play Mary Harden Baylor, and that may be somebody who has to uh, has to jump on an airplane. Um, because you know there's nobody else within reach we could end up keith you know frankly with um you know the, let, let's talk about four west coast teams not impossible still kind of unlikely but we'll talk a little bit about more about this uh but two in the northwest two in southern california neither of them has to fly because the ncaa would simply match the rematch the conference opponents in the first round but then somebody has to get on a plane to fly to texas and and you know if you add in the number of teams across the south that that uh, have potential of making the playoffs, Pat. You know, especially if <clears throat> if the uh, if Huntington would beat Wesley on, on the final weekend and get in, you could have a, a West South bracket, eight teams, right? You could come up with four teams from the South that'll make it: Mary Harden, Baylor, uh, the winner of Louisiana College and McMurray this weekend has a chance. Trinity may be the 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 SCAC champion, and Huntington has a chance. If you could stick all those teams in a bracket with the four West Coast teams, then you could just everybody else could just drive. And uh, it would be we've seen, you know, some strange matchups over the years when when uh, geography doesn't all fall in line. You know, we've seen years ago now uh, Harden Simmons went to Wittenberg to play a playoff game. We saw Mary Harden Baylor have to go to Central uh, in 2009. Uh, I'm sure there's some other ones you could think of off the top of your head, Pat, but but it doesn't always work out perfectly. And sometimes, uh, you know, Redlands went to St. John's one year, I think, for a playoff game. So we get sometimes we get these interesting matchups with the, uh, the teams that are stuck on the D3 islands, the West Coast and the, uh, and the Southern teams. Unfortunately, I had a, uh, as I was talking about that West Coast, Texas scenario, I had, a, uh, I had a nightmare scenario pop into my head. And if there's two Southern California teams and Linfield and Mary Harden Baylor and Trinity and Louisiana College, you have two island teams and they happen to be the number four and number five teams in the country. And would they fly one of them to play the other? That's tough because you know, in theory, you don't you don't want the committee to be making the bracket to try to eliminate travel teams. And it, it's you know we've we've seen in the past where they they make the bracket the way they think is fair and then send it on, and then somebody who's doing the um, financials, the, the financials. That's a good way to put it. Sends it back and says, "Hey, you got to fix this." Um, and, and then the and then the bracket gets distorted from what the, the committee would prefer it would be, and, and we know that's happened at least once in the past. Um, 
there there's a lot of uh, possibilities still up in the air and and i think this is shaping up to be you know geographically one of the more interesting years because um there's so many island teams left that it may not be islands after all so we'll, we'll see how it shakes out obviously we don't want to see may harden baylor at wesley or, or at linfield i'm sorry or linfield at may harden baylor in the first round because yeah those are those are powerful teams that we can expect to be around the playoffs for a couple of rounds at least just based on who they play we have uh you know, a uh, lightning round coming. We need to talk about what's going to happen at Week 10 because there are a lot of great games. And um, we've, we've spent a lot of time on uh, on the top 25 and, and teams that are uh, uh, getting into the playoffs. Um, I would say if you want to know more about St. Scholastica, you can uh, watch my D3 report from this week, and, and maybe we won't discuss it here on the podcast. But you just scroll down on this page if you're on the blog. It'll be there. Um, how about the Albion-Adrian game? Uh, these are teams that kind of came into this, uh, which basically was for the MIAA title, uh, coming from pretty divergent paths. Uh, Albion had a, a pretty crazy, difficult uh, non-conference schedule. Adrian played Husson. They played Defiance. They played uh, Concordia, Illinois. They played Augustana, which is a, a credit to them in scheduling, but Augustana didn't kind of hold up its end of the bargain. And then Albion, so they, so Adrian came in undefeated, uh, not in our top 25 poll. They were in the other one. Albion comes in to Saturday's game at 4-3, and three, but what they did is they played Butler, which is uh, a, a Division One FCS, a non-scholarship program. But, you know, uh, I, I would have to say Butler's gotten a lot more uh, notoriety over the last couple of years in the athletics world than Albion has, to be sure. Um, then they went to Wheaton. And they hosted Wisconsin Stevens Point, and they started the season 0-3, and and, uh, and yet, you know, here we are. Yeah, I mean, that's the real amazing thing, Pat, is how can you start a season 0-3 and, and then by week 9 clinch your, your team, you know, playoff bid, yeah, clinch your the, the, the automatic bid for, uh, for the MIAA. It's sort of a, a pretty amazing thing, but it goes to show you you know what the what the logic is behind playing those teams by the starting off with Butler, a trip to Butler, uh, going to play at Wheaton, you know, and losing that game by by twenty, and then uh, playing Wisconsin Stevens Point. You know, the Britons decided they're going to play as tough an early schedule as they as they could to test that to test them for for uh, you know the MIAA schedule. And when they got into the the MIAA, you know, suddenly you know Kalamazoo, Alma, Hope. Olivet and Adrian don't look so tough when you've already played Wheaton and Stevens Point, which, you know, coming from the toughest conference, um, you know, two of the toughest conferences, actually, if you count the CCIW, too, you know, playing guys that really are probably bigger, stronger, faster than most of the guys in the MIAA. I can't say I saw this one coming. I, I, I really didn't. Um, I thought Adrian, when they beat Trine, that they would be in good shape to run the table and um, sort of forgot about Albion because they had that 0-3 start. But they had a uh, heck of a game on Saturday, and, and here they are in the playoffs. You know, it wasn't anything fluky about it. It was 14-14 at one, at one point in the third quarter. And uh, Albion um, you know, scored in the third quarter and then uh, iced the game with a uh, interception return for a touchdown. Uh, Albion has already played the two teams that are a game behind it in the conference. Uh, Adrian and Hope each have one loss, but both of those losses have come to Albion. Albion plays at DePauw uh, this upcoming Saturday. That's a non-conference game, and then they finish at home against Trine, uh, and Trine's already lost two conference games, so they are uh, out of the running for the conference title. I mean, Albion could uh, 
could end up like St. Lawrence and finish uh, five and five and still get into the playoffs, or they could finish seven and three and and maybe avoid Mountain Union or Whitewater in the first round. Yeah, and that that's going to be a real interesting case now when you start getting any team in the playoffs with more than than two losses. You have to figure is going to be an eight seed or a seven seed. Except when you get in in the north, um, right now the situation in, in that part of the country where you have a couple of young conferences in the UMAC and uh, and the Northern Athletics Conference and NAFCON um, sending their playoff teams, you know, those are traditionally pretty low-seeded teams. So Albion really is that could actually be playing for uh, for playoff seeding, Pat, like you said, trying to dodge one of those big purple powers in the first round, give itself a chance at having a game. You know, three losses, you're not going to get a home game. But a chance at having a game, you maybe can go and win or spring an upset or, or at least play well enough where you could turn around and build on that and recruiting. And, uh, you know, Albion... Proud program, one of the rare teams um, that's won a Stag Bowl uh, in Salem that, that isn't Mount Union or Whitewater. Um, they, they, they're going to be an interesting case to watch as far as where they get seated here in, uh, and when the playoffs start. Um, also on Saturday, um, and this is, you know, obviously we're getting a little, a little farther from the playoffs as well, but uh, North Park continues to get uh, get real close. We, we talked in a uh, triple take about the at least that game against Carthage being closer than expected, and it was another close one, but a, another loss for the Vikings. Yeah, and, and now it goes back to 2000 where the Vikings haven't um, won a CCIW game, but they're in these games. And I, I, I think if we're looking for a parallel between North Park, if you're a you know, North Park player or fan or, or what have you, looking for a situation where you see a team that's that's in a conference and it's just overmatched, overwhelmed, and then they get dedicated, they start start to build that program. That progress comes slow, and I think North Park is in the middle of that 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 um, improvement where the progress is there. You're starting to see it, but you haven't seen the wins yet. Take a look at what Lewis and Clark has done in, in the Northwest Conference. Uh, a few years ago, I mean, they were they were getting blown out of the water. Uh, they were lucky, you know, they were lucky to still have their football program. They were thinking about maybe we don't want to be we don't want to be in the Northwest Conference anymore. And here they are now. You know, this past Saturday, they beat Pacific Lutheran. They are undefeated. Uh, you know, they still have Linfield and uh, and Willamette yet to play, but uh, the the it can happen for for North Park, and and they're getting there. And it's it's you know it's encouraging, I think, to see them. Um, to see that program get close and, and to see that, you know, playing Carthage la last year well wasn't just a case of Carthage taking it easy on them, that they, they turned around this year and pl played them well again. And uh, it's going to happen for, for North Park, I think, sooner or later. And uh, we're getting there. You know, you watch those scores every Saturday and think it'd be nice to see them, you know, after 10, you know, 11 years now of not winning a CCIW game. Uh, it'd be nice to see them win one. It, it may not happen this year, but it, it's going to happen. About Lewis and Clark, Keith, um, you know, the, the mind-boggling thing is that no matter what happens in their game against Willamette on Saturday, Lewis and Clark is guaranteed to play a head-to-head -head game against Linfield for the Northwest Conference title. That's right, because they'll, even if they pick up the loss, they, uh, they'll be able to you know, catch Linfield in the standings because Linfield w would only have one loss at, at that point, and then they would win the tiebreaker. So, yeah, how about that? Lewis and Clark going from... You know, being two and seven just two years ago in 2009, made the two win jump last year to four and five. And they've already made a three win jump, and now they're seven and zero. Oh now they've beaten four Northwest Conference teams, and those four wins this year in the NWC—that's more than they had 
2004 to 2010 combined. They went they went oh it oh for the Northwest Conference from 04 to 08. Then uh, they were one and five in 09. They're two and four in 2010. So this was really, I mean, one of the great stories of the season to be quite honest with you. And I know uh, Chris Salah just took that program over. Uh, several years ago, and we've talked to him at different intervals over the years, and he said, you know, it took a lot of time to get to get people, um, you know, just to, just to believe in Lewis and Clark football again. And then they had to go and 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 play some teams that they could they could beat just so they could feel feel what it's like to win. And then they're they're now. I think this last year, out on the recruiting trail, they brought in their biggest the biggest class that they can remember. You know, they have finally have a star quarterback. And now it's really starting to come together for them. And uh, regardless of what happens against Willamette and Linfield, you're right, Pat, to be able to play a game at Linfield on November 12th and still have a chance at winning the Northwest Conference Championship, you know, where they were just trying to win a Northwest Conference game for several years, uh, it really is a uh, a great story for them. And, and it's uh, a little bit of, of, of a tale that, that North Park can look at and say, if we keep working, if we're building and we stay recruiting and, and you know, you can still stay true to what your, your institution's mission is. But if you got that dedication to football, you, you can uh, you can turn that corner. And if you want to know more about Lewis and Clark, I would recommend reading uh, Jason Gillespie's Around the West column. Uh, this is from last week. But you can still find it on the uh, Around the Region page. So it obviously doesn't take into account the big win at Pacific Lutheran, but you can learn a little bit more about the Pioneers and uh, and how they got here. Um, lightning round, and instead of starting with lightning, I want to I want to start with the uh, start with the snow. Um, we, we've uh, y you had uh, so you had sleet where you were, but uh, pretty much everywhere north of that was uh was snow including let's say uh Lebanon Valley Lyco game for example almost anything happening in the state of Pennsylvania and uh in New Jersey and uh, the list goes on and on yeah and and if you're one of our listeners who's not from the the northeast this is not typical to have snow in October in Pennsylvania. Uh, I mean, it may be typical in you know it northern isn't. Canada. <laughs> I would or say something it's, like that. It's not typical here in uh, Minnesota either. No, I mean that's the thing. And and there's there's some cold weather locales in Division Three. You know, we've got uh, four or five teams in Maine. We got a lot of teams in in Wisconsin and Minnesota and and uh, you know Michigan and places where snow is normal. And in in December, it's kind of normal. For uh, you know, in Pennsylvania, but but not in October. So that was that was really something else to see that you know I, I know there was snow at uh, FDU Florham in, in New Jersey. Uh, there was snow other places across the the Mid Atlantic, and it was just strange to see where it did hit, where it didn't hit, and then to be able to uh, you know just to see you tweeting from uh, you know Iowa where it's beautiful, and have people tweeting from Minnesota. You know, Concordia Moorhead is, is saying it's a beautiful day for football. Yeah. Meanwhile, meanwhile, you were out here uh, in in the east, and it was it was not a beautiful day. And we'll just leave it at that. But it is always a great day for football. The, the thing about that that Lebval uh, Lycoming game was that it was a ten seven game, and I'm sure the weather played a role in in keeping it close because both those teams can score. Uh, and then you you watch the video, you know, Pat. We watched it a little bit before we uh, went on air, and, and it's just something else to to see it. You really just have to see it, I guess. Uh, with your own eyes. Hopefully, we get some good um, play of the week submissions this week, and hopefully, something uh, you know interesting happened in one of those snow games where uh, where we we see a great play with a great backdrop. And uh, if you want to watch that uh, Levval Lyco video that uh, Keith mentioned, uh, it's also in the playlist at the bottom. After you uh, watch the D three reports, uh, there's highlights from various games. Uh, 
you could see Matt Pilato. We talked about him uh, earlier for uh, passing for Mount Union. The, we've got Mount Union Otterbein highlights, uh, Lev Valleco, and we'll continue to add to that list as the uh, as as Monday progresses and and even later in the week, because I know not everybody has the ability to turn uh, video highlights around on a dime. Uh, let's move ahead to the to the lightning round and. Uh, uh, Central, uh, time run out on them and uh, their chances on uh, kind of staying in the conference race in the Iowa Conference. Yeah, the, the interesting thing about Central is they were they were playing to, to stay in the race with Coe and Dubuque. And, you know, who can tell which team is truly the best team out of those? You know, Warburg and Central um, now t with two losses in the conference uh, look like their they're, they're chances at winning it are shot. Central uh, in that game puts together a, a long drive with a chance to beat Warburg and uh, had a play from the three-yard line and, and uh, incomplete pass, time ran out on him. Add that one to the, the chapter of, of, you know, the great rivalry between the Dutch and the Knights. It's, it's been probably the best one in that conference for a long time, and this one goes down in history, even though it, it may not have a conference championship riding on it. Certainly, uh, it sounded like a great finish. Yeah, and it's neither team's natural rival necessarily, but it is uh, certainly the uh, the big competitive rivalry in the, in the, in Iowa right now. Um, the the big comp uh, not competitive not competitive but traditional rivalry in Abilene, Texas, and McMurray, which hadn't beaten Harden Simmons in either of our lifetimes, uh, and I'm no spring chicken. Uh, I would be a summer chicken. Um, takes a takes the crosstown uh, rivalry game for I guess might be the last time it gets played. Yeah, well with McMurray moving to uh, Division 2 next season, uh, they they may they may still schedule each other if they're nearby, but we, we doubt that it's going to happen. Um, it was nice I think for McMurray to 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 finally get that that W over the crosstown rival. There was a time, you know, I went to Abilene uh, a few seasons ago and um, you can see, you could see at McMurray the commitment they they put into the athletic program i mean it, there was something I, I don't think i'd ever seen this anywhere else across the top of the gym they had a banner of uh, their, their top basketball player and their top women's basketball player and you could see it from pretty much wherever you're standing um you know out on uh, on, on parts of campus but the football stadium was a little bit run down and i think mcmurray's now uh made that commitment to the facilities, made the commitment to the football program. Obviously, having Hal Mummy help someone who has name recognition from coaching at D1, they decide they want to make the move to D2, and, and so they're really bringing up the football program. And this is the first year that they've had that success, and so they they got a chance to settle a lot of scores with uh, with American Southwest teams. And this was the the last one they really needed to to get settled, I guess, with uh, beating Harden Simmons. You know, McMurray didn't go crazy. Uh, scoring like like they've done in uh, in a lot of their games this season. Harden Simmons pretty uh, respectable on defense. It was a 24-14 final, you know, and that's coming from McMurray putting up the last four weeks 63, 50, 41, and 60 points. So you know to be to be held to 24 is a big deal, uh, and at the same time to to get a win was a big deal for McMurray over Harden Simmons. McMurray hadn't beaten Harden Simmons since 1963, uh, which means that. The day, the year that Harden Simmons brought its football program back, because uh, it had uh, been dormant for quite some time, uh, it was able to. The first year they played McMurray, they were able to go out and beat their crosstown rival, and uh, and McMurray hadn't beaten Harden Simmons since until Saturday with that uh, 24 to 14 win, ending 47 years of either frustration or just not being able to play them. Uh, New England Football Conference. Uh, we're getting close to figuring out who these uh, 
who the two teams are that are going to meet in that uh, conference title game. It's the only conference title game in Division Three. And in fact, the rule that created the uh, the conference title game in Division Three may have uh, blown up Division One football because the uh, the rule was put in that any conference that had 12 teams in two divisions could have a uh, could have an extra game as a conference championship game. And look who uh, took that uh, took that rule and ran with it. All of uh, Division One FBS practically. Yeah, you're right. And it, you know, it was the the D2 PSAC and and the NFC. Uh, we're, we're a couple of the first conferences to take advantage of uh, of that NFC having the 16 teams, the two uh, eight-team divisions, and they play um, a schedule that starts very week one, no bye, right through week 10, and then the last two teams will get an 11th game, play each other in the title game, and then the winner of that game is fortunate enough to play a 12th game. And uh, so in theory, that NFC were, were it to win the, win the Stag Bowl or go to a Stag Bowl, they could play 16 games. Um, because they have that extra title game in there, you know. I thought, aside from the the Albion Adrian game, that 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 was the biggest um, biggest shocker of the weekend came out of the NFC Boyd. It wasn't stunning. I think that that Western New England beat Endicott because Western New England coming into the game was uh, seven and one, and now they're they're eight and one and and seven and zero oh in their end of the conference. But I don't know if I if I really. Um, I just Endicott seemed like it was it was rolling in it, and this was a game that uh, you know Western New England started to to. I guess they never really pulled away, but they took control. You know, they they led by ten a couple times in the second half, and and every time Endicott had an answer, you know, came back and made it a three point game. Western New England turned around, scored again, and uh, it, and Endicott uh, really just ran out of time on that one. And actually, to be honest with you, that this is how close we are to finding out. Uh, who's going to play in that conference championship game? It, it's already set. Uh, Western New England will host Framingham State for the uh, the conference championship uh, coming up in Week 11. And and you know Framingham State was looking at having a pretty um, big game this week. We thought that that the game um, I'm actually forgetting it off the top of my head, but they had a they they were on the list of uh, of big games in November, on November 5th. It was uh, they they had to go to, to Worcester State and you know, Worcester State was five and zero at one point during the season and uh now they won't even get a chance to play in the uh in the uh, nfc title game framingham state lost early in the season also to endicott i know so so you sort of figure that that if endicott would get another you know maybe they would get another shot at endicott and, and try to um to avenge that loss but they won't have to they'll be playing the golden bears and so you know the neat thing i think from from the national perspective or even just from the the you know east coast northeast perspective is that you'll, you'll see a new team in the playoffs this year wnec or framingham state will be um you know maybe play a game in new york play against a team from pennsylvania and and personally i enjoy that you know obviously if you're a diehard fan of, of one of the teams uh that lost to them or, or is losing to them it's not as exciting but for us it's always exciting to see new faces and to see new programs get a taste of that success because i know that success is a big deal when you when you go out and you're recruiting you know 17 year old kids who who want to get a taste of success in uh in college and it'll be a new experience for those teams as well. Framington, uh, Framingham State has played nobody outside the NEFC all season. Western New England has played one team outside the NEFC, and that was Norwich out of the ECFC, one of the few conferences below the uh, the NEFC in the proverbial pecking order. Um, on the other side of the league, r real quickly, Keith, uh, Maine Maritime shut out. I, I can't remember the last time I saw something like that. 
Well, especially because Maine Maritime runs the triple option, you know, to perfection. We talk a lot about Salisbury and Springfield, and Maine Maritime is right there in that same breath. Uh, you know, they, they put up sometimes numbers ridiculous. You know, you'd see 500 rushing yards in a game. Uh, shut out by Bridgewater State on Saturday. And I had to dig into that one a little bit and see w- what the story was. Um, quarterback Matt Rendy, I know he'd, he'd been um, kind of battling an injury, and he played the first series on Saturday and then uh, was relieved to, to start the second series by a different quarterback. And uh, you know in that triple option offense, Pat, the quarterback makes all the reads. So if the guy that, that drives the offense, so to speak, is uh, it's just a little bit off on Saturday – um, you know, that, that triple option offense, it's, it's so much based on timing and, and, and they have to run it to perfection. You know, one of the things I noticed at that Salisbury did on this weekend, uh, the whole offense lines up within two yards of the line of scrimmage. So every play is such a bang, bang play. And, uh, if you don't have the right guy operating the controls, uh, you, you know, you can see what happened, uh, against Bridgewater state 27, zero, the bears, I'm sure they played a great game on defense, but I'm sure part of it had to do with, uh, Main Maritime not having the uh, quarterback who's been running it for a few years on offense. Right, and in fact, Ben Violet uh, played last week through 19 passes, played this week through 21, 22, so that's that's unusual for Main Maritime as well. We talked in Triple Take about Ithaca needing to run the table to keep their streak of consecutive winning seasons alive. They're, uh, they're at 40, and uh, they, they're, they're not out of the woods yet, but they're, uh, they're not eliminated yet. They won in dramatic fashion. Yeah, 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 rallied and 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 kicked a field goal on the final play uh, to win the game, thirty-four yarder, and uh, snapped a three-game losing streak for for Ithaca, which of course um, has that that streak that you mentioned, Pat. And and you know this season it started to go south uh, for them a little bit. I think this is probably the first time that that they haven't been an Empire Eight contender. You know, from the very start of the season, right from the first game against uh, Salisbury. And then, you know, they, they lost a couple weeks later to Fisher in, in Springfield. And all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're at two and four in the Empire 8. And they, they haven't been below 500 in the conference, you know, in our time doing, uh, doing uh, well, since there's been an Empire 8. Uh, because, you know, that goes back to the, the precursor of that league. And, and that, that's a whole another story. But Ithaca really is in this group with, uh, with Central and with Linfield that has these proud streaks that they, they like to hang on to. For, you know, for being successful program year after year after year. And it really is a big deal, I think, uh, to that program to be able to have a shot with the last two games against Alfred and then the quarter jug game against their rival, Cortland State. They'll be playing for something. You know, they won't be playing for a playoff bid or the Empire title, but to, to want to preserve that streak. They're 4-4 four and four right now, and they need to split these two games, you know, yeah. to remain, remain yeah. 500, and they need to, uh, to win them both. To uh, to keep the winning streak going, right? Because uh, Central, in fact, uh, finished 500 uh, yeah. last decade, and they have had to kind of downgrade their streak from a streak of winning seasons to a streak of seasons that are 500 or better. Uh, you know, remember Keith when we were talking about we were doing the the uh, the rankings for kickoff from one to 239, and and just marveling at the fact that Ithaca is the fifth best team in the Empire Eight when the uh, season started. Well, Utica beat them. Now they're the sixth best team in the in the league. You know, and, and the thing is, I saw Frostburg State in Utica play um, back in September. And, you know, the teams going up and down the field on each other. Utica has a, a pretty nice uh, wide receiver in Anthony Acevedo, and Frostburg State ran the ball well that day. But at, at no point during that game did I see those two teams as teams that were going to be pulling upsets over Alfred and Ithaca later in the season. You know, I just didn't – you think you draw the line somewhere, and, and the teams that you – 
normally expect to, to, to be at the top of the conference. You just figure they're going to be up there again. Uh, now that I've gotten to see a couple of different Empire teams play, it's, uh, it, it makes a little more sense how the, how the league is, sh- is shaking out. Salisbury uh, on Saturday, I mean, they, they physically they match up with Wesley. And if you can match up with Wesley, you, you know, you can match up with anybody below Mount Union and Whitewater. So uh, Salisbury, I think, has a chance to, to, to do a lot of damage in the playoffs. And it, it makes sense why they've done a lot of damage in the Empire 8. I'm a little surprised that, that Frostburg State and, and Utica have done as well as they have, though. Coming up this week in Week 10, uh, as we're we're over our hour, but stick with us. we got a, a few more minutes because we really got to talk about what's coming up uh, for this second-to-last week of the uh, Division Three regular season. There are a lot of you know games that are either winner-take-all or basically will be uh, will decide the, the conference championship. Um, Wittenberg at Wabash. We've been waiting. Uh, I think Wittenberg's been waiting maybe for a chance to redeem itself. They had the bye week this week. Uh, you know, it's... Uh, it's three weeks ago that they lost at Huntingdon. Um, they beat uh, Kenyon and Carnegie Mellon since, and now they uh, have to go to Wabash, and Wittenberg's kind of struggled on the road this season, as we've mentioned uh, numerous times. Yeah, and, and the thing for me was seeing Wabash uh, get tested a little bit this week, having to beat uh, Allegheny 22-16. You know, that's probably good for them heading into this game. They get humbled a little bit. They'll, they'll take a look at the film and or the video and see, see what they've done, you know, to, to – to, because you get so excited, I think, uh, for when you, especially in the North Coast, where they don't play a lot, of, a lot of tough teams. This is the game um, for, for for Wittenberg, and I know for Wabash, they they have the DePaul game coming up right after it. But it's a it's a big deal, and uh, it's going to decide a a automatic bid. From the NCAC to the SCAC, we've been waiting for uh, this conference to kind of clear up a little bit, and uh, Center of Trinity is going to get us uh, what we need here. Yeah, and, and the thing about this one is not just is it going to decide an automatic qualifier, but it, it's going to have a far-reaching effect as, as in terms of the way the playoffs shake out. Because if Trinity wins, then you have you know what we talked about earlier in the podcast, all these options in the South. And if Center wins, you know to be quite honest, uh, an undefeated Center uh, maybe gets a home. You know, you, then you have Thomas Moore sort of across the state in Kentucky, but both those teams are undefeated. Do we send two teams to Kentucky? Is, is that a big deal because uh, there's teams in Virginia and Ohio that can make the trip? It, it will really be interesting geographically. And it's in, I know in other divisions, they don't necessarily spend a lot of time thinking about, well, where is this team in relation to this team? But it's a big deal uh, when we sort out the D3 playoffs. And, and that's going to be another reason to pay attention to that SCAC game on Saturday. Uh, in the USA South, uh, we've got two teams tied for first place, and they meet on Saturday. And, and it's not like Christopher Newport and Ferrum uh, haven't met for the uh, – for that conference title before, and it's, it, they've been doing that for a lot of years in the USA South, and and you know they're they're playing just to have uh, you know they're going to get a play the winner of this game you know gets to win the conference get a playoff shot and uh, they'll they'll probably go on the road in the first round but we've seen low seeds in the East pull the upset before so uh, and in fact out of the USA South uh, North Carolina Wesleyan went up to Washington Jefferson and knocked them off one year so. Getting in is the first part of the, the thing. Winning the conference is, is the first part of the deal. But it opens the door up to so many opportunities that can really change the way uh, your program is perceived. And it changes the way that the kids in the program remember that season. So uh, that for, for this week, that starts for Christopher Newport and Farrell. Uh, we mentioned Dubuque and Co. earlier from the kind of fr- when talking about Dubuque. But talk about Co. for just a second. Remember the uh, disappointing season that their waste, uh, disappointing way that their season started 0-2. 
trounced on the road at Harden-Simmons, lost to a team that hadn't won in 18 consecutive games. And yet, you know, we talked about the fact that they still have all their, uh, you know, their, their conference games in front of them. And, and here they are, 5-1, and one, a half game behind Dubuque. Uh, they beat Dubuque. They move ahead in first place and just have to, uh, um, I guess they have to beat C- Cornell in order to stay out of a tiebreaker mess and, and win the conference title. Pat, that was the theme of the co- podcast that week, if you remember. It was, uh, you know, not no time to panic. Right, them and St. John's and right. somebody and, else. And, and Co. It started out. They lost that Harden Simmons lost the unexpected game to Olivet Nazarene, and then, you know, they started to just get into their conference schedule, beat the teams they're familiar with. They pulled a, you know, at the time was an upset win at Warburg. Uh, they did, you know, they lost to Central, but ever since then, they, they've I think found their stride a little bit. They had they've been playing. Uh, you know, not the tougher teams in in the in the Iowa Conference, so they really need to. to play a great game uh, this Saturday. They're at home. Uh, they got to figure out how to cover Mike Zwiefel. But, you know, for for a team that started out with two straight losses, you know, goes back to the same thing we said about Albion. To start your team off, I mean, to start your season off against tough teams, lose those games, but to still have a chance to win the AQ. I think that that's the, the beauty of the uh, automatic qualifier system. For those wondering, Wesley was the other team uh, who was, uh, we were telling not to panic. That was uh, back on... September 12th, you can listen to uh, that podcast by scrolling really, really far back in the archives. Uh, <laughs> maybe that's not a 44-minute uh, and 29 seconds you want to uh, you want to spend at this point, and that's understandable. Um, we talked a little bit about uh, Norwich. Uh, they are going to play for the ECFC title, essentially, when they face SUNY Maritime on Saturday. And same as last year, I believe, and, and SUNY Maritime was the one that got in, but, you know, a- as a player... When you have that, all the games are big, but you get one that starts to be year in and year out, the game that you look forward to, thinking we have a chance to win the conference, get in the playoffs if we beat this team. And you lose that game, that's in the back of your mind the whole year. I don't care what you say. You you can do whatever you want to motivate yourself or, or whatever the case may be, but that's part of it. And, and you can't wait to get a shot. You don't have to wait. 365 days or however many days it is to, to get another shot at this team and to rectify the mistakes you made in that game as a person, as a player, as a competitor. And you can't wait for that opportunity. I know Norwich, uh, they don't want to blow it again. Yeah, last year they lost at SUNY Maritime uh, by the score of 20-2. to two. Uh, This year they have them at home, and it's the, uh, it's the last uh, game on the slate for Norwich. So they're another team with a, a week 11 bye. Uh, and uh, so they'll be in the clubhouse. They'll know whether they're in or whether they're uh, headed for an ECAC game, which is, <coughs> for those of you not on the East Coast, that is a, a postseason bowl game type opportunity for a, a, a teams in, in that part of the country. Uh, St. John Fisher at Salisbury. This is uh, basically going to decide the uh, the Empire Eight and, and Keith. Do we think differently about Salisbury? I know the poll kind of ended up the same. Uh, Salisbury lost some ground in terms of number of uh, number of votes, but there was a big gap uh, between them and number twelve before. That's tightened up a little bit, and number seven at home beat number eleven. So maybe the poll didn't need to be fixed. But do we feel differently about them uh, after this week? Uh, I I don't personally. I mean, they they didn't you know run up the yards on Wesley like they run up on some of these other teams. But again, Wesley knows them almost as well uh, as they know themselves because Salisbury and Wesley have played uh, every year. And, uh, you know, th- there was opportunities for Salisbury to put more points on the board in that game. Uh, and um, I-, I think for them, the focus is, you know, maybe you throw the Wesley game out or maybe use it as a learning opportunity. But to get back to what they were doing, what they're doing well, the thing is, 
St. John Fisher has seen Springfield's option before, but but they haven't seen Salisbury. And so it, it, it'll be a uh, most likely, I, I, if I had to guess, I would say Salisbury picks up right where they left off two weeks ago. Uh, we mentioned uh, McMurray of Louisiana College. These are two teams uh, battling as uh, runners-up in the American Southwest Conference with hopes of uh, the winner getting a, an at-large bid. Uh, we talked about Baldwin-Wallace at Mount Union. This is the kind of the last big hurdle that Mount Union has to overcome. They can win the conference title with a W. Or we can remember the last time that Mount Union didn't win the OAC championship. Yeah, Baldwin-Wallace was a team that won in 1994. Yeah, three-way tie at the at the top of the league. I think John Carroll was the other team in that one. Um, Trinity at Amherst. This is the uh, the two unbeaten's in the NESCAC. Would not not playoff uh, bound, obviously, but a, a big game. Yeah, and and especially with the NESCAC being so focused on the final week of the season with those rivalries, um, to have something to have the conference title sorted out uh, in week ten will be for them because uh yeah week 11 is all about amherst williams trinity wesleyan and then the last game in the cbb rivalry and then the last game on our list but certainly not the uh the least interesting at least not with the way it, it came out last year is uh um is hampton sydney against washington and lee uh, that game being played at hampton sydney and uh it's going to be most likely another shootout these are two teams that can put up points put them up quickly and, you know we see hampton sydney do it a little more in the passing game uh, Washington Lee is able to confuse teams with the way they they run the ball. Uh, it's their offense, I've heard it described as you know, part pistol, part option, part spread. I don't, I don't know. I haven't seen them uh, play, but I've seen the numbers, and and they they put up crazy numbers. That should be a, a great game. Hampton Sydney gave up forty nine points on Saturday to Guilford. Yeah, I didn't know what to make of that. You know, sometimes you get ahead a couple touchdowns, and uh, you you know your defense slacks off a little bit. As long as you have that couple touchdown lead, you don't worry about it too much. But that has to be a little bit of an eye opener. Well, and, and Guilford had a twenty-one to seven lead early in the second quarter. And, and you know, we've there's been a couple games in the history of Hampton, Sydney, and Guilford. That's kind of a, kind of a weird rivalry because there's no natural connection between the two schools, except that they're both in the ODAC. But um, they've they've put up some points on each other. I remember in the Vogelbach years, Guilford uh, scored a bunch against Hampton, Sydney, and. and you know, to be quite honest, uh, defense is really where Hampton City needs to be placing its focus this week anyway. So uh, maybe that will humble them a little bit going into the big WNL game. Well, I'm sure if there's anything that we missed somehow in this hour and 15-minute practically podcast, uh, you'll let us know about it on Twitter. Uh, certainly moments after this thing hits uh, at about uh, 8 o'clock in the morning on Monday. Uh, but for now, he's Keith McMillan. I'm Pat Coleman, and that is the Around the Nation podcast.